Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 23rd, 2022, and my guest is Dwayne Betts. His first appearance on Econ Talk was October 2020, when he talked about reading, his time in prison, his poetry collection entitled Felon, and his project, which is now called Freedom Reads, which has the goal of placing a curated 500-book collection in prison housing units so that curious prisoners can have access to books. And since he was here the first time, he has won a MacArthur grant, and although we don't want to believe that correlation is causation. You never know. Could be true. Uh, Could be. After Econ Talk, everything turned around for Dwayne. Uh, just kidding. But we're, uh, I, am, I am thrilled about that project, Freedom Reads. And if you have not um, looked into it, we have, we'll, of course, have a link uh, to the website. I just want to warn parents listening with young children, there will be topics and conversation and uh in this conversation that might not be appropriate for young children. So you may want to listen in advance. Twain, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's a, it's a true pleasure. I, I'm really happy to be here. And and it is funny because um, the the sort of rub against economists is that they don't read books, <laughs> like literature. And, and, and you're consistently um, proving, proving that not to be the, the sort of norm uh, if, so, so I'm excited to be here to talk about Prevo Levy and uh, Ralph Ellison. Yeah, well, th- the idea behind this conversation is a little bit crazy. Um, I encouraged Dwayne to read two books by Primo Levy that I had read a long time ago, at least one of them, the first one. And that is a book called If This Is a Man, which is his memoir of, of being in Auschwitz. And about a decade plus after he wrote that first book, he wrote a sequel, sort of of what happened after he was released from Auschwitz, Auschwitz called The Truce. Uh, I'll mention in passing, they have different titles sometimes in America. Um, the first, If This Is a Man, is also called in America Survival in Auschwitz. And The Truce, I think, is sometimes called in America The Awakening. Those are both horrible titles. Uh Levy's mm-hmm. original titles are much better. We'll probably talk about that. Anyway, so... Dwayne read those, and and um, I thought it'd be interesting if they're about the Jewish experience to some extent. So I thought it'd be interesting for me to read something uh, from the Black experience, and then we would share our thoughts on that. And Dwayne suggested Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which I had read 40 or 50 years ago, remembered very little of it. Uh, I particularly forgot it was 582 pages long. I might have made some kind of protest, Dwayne, but uh, <laughs> but it uh, it's... I'm really glad I read it. It's an extraordinary book. Um, I think a easily uh, arguably the great American novel, and I didn't appreciate it when I was 20 years old. And um, so I'm, I'm very glad I read it again. Let's start, Dwayne. Why don't you say something about Ralph Ellison? Um, you know, Ralph Ellison is is almost like the patron saint of missed deadlines. <laughs> um, uh, because and, and I'll talk about Invisible Man in a second, but 
he's the kind of person who put a lot of pressure on himself to write the first book um from oklahoma uh was a musician but was just like a deeply curious individual and he moves to new york to become a writer and he he builds these relationships with langston hughes with richard wright a series of deeply deeply fascinating letters um with richard wright which which arguably helped uh, help me understand better some of the parts of Invisible Man that made me cringe on the first read and the second read. Um, but he he would work on Invisible Man for years and years and years. And and when it was finally released, um, interestingly enough, the the prologue and the epilogue were written last. You know, so so it wasn't this notion of like he knew where he was going from the beginning. It's almost like an improvisational jazz riff. And I always thought about it as a, as a, um, a coming of age story, but it might be better considered a picaresque than a coming of age story. Um, and I, and I stole that from, from somebody, but I think it might be better considered a picaresque because it, it is like sort of this, this, his, his, his work trying to understand, um, what it means to be American. And, um, and after that, you know, he, he wrote, he excelled as an essayist. He wrote Shadow and Act and Going to the Territory. And his, his second novel, Juneteenth, uh, was never completed. But famously, as he was working on it and delayed and delayed and delayed, it was like the whole manuscript burned in the fire. And when he passed, he had 2,000 pages that sort of got coupled together into um, two different books. One was Juneteenth and one was like three days um, before the shooting. And and I, I think actually it's, it's, it's Invisible Man becomes the rare single book that I do think stands the test of time and reading it this time, I recognize that it says things to me that I didn't notice the first time I read it, but also that I haven't necessarily heard other people say, which is, which is like deeply fascinating that I could find something in a book that not only did I not notice, but in listening to podcasts and reading reviews, like I hadn't noticed other people um, noticing. Uh, a picaresque, I think, is a uh, a series of adventures that a character goes on, uh, like almost a travelogue. Um, it's a very peculiar book. It's not a normal novel at all. Um, the character's personality is not, quote, normal. Um, we get deep, deep access to some of his inner thoughts, and we miss – he decides not to share uh, a bunch of – a bunch of others. Uh, let me say a little bit about Primo Levi. Um, oh, and I think the cocktail party word for um, a coming of age book is a building's Roman, which is good. If, yeah, I couldn't pronounce yeah, it. I'm, well, neither can <laughs> I. So that's my, my shot. Um, but anyway, uh, it could be handy like a crossword puzzle. I don't know. Uh, Primo Levi was a chemist. He's Italian. Uh, he's deported to Auschwitz uh, late in the war, I think, um, 43, 44, around 43, 44. Uh, he spends, um, I think, 11 months in, in the camp, survives, is liberate as part of the liberation of the camp when the Russians come. And um, it's a searingly, if this is a man, is a searingly unemotional look at the human beings thrust together in the camp. It's, um, it's really a powerful book. And then the truce is about how he gets home back to Italy, uh, from, from Auschwitz, 
which I think would take about a week, maybe, or a few days, but instead I think it takes nine months. And it's a harrowing, heartbreaking uh, book. Also very funny in parts. Um, as an economist, I'm fascinated by the relentless amount of bargaining and barter that takes place in that book. There, there are a number of characters in that book who just like to make a deal. And they're just going to argue with somebody about they'll sell a shoelace or a, uh, a chicken wing. I mean, it's an unbelievable book for, as as a illustration of uh, Adam Smith's line about man's propensity to truck barter and exchange. But ultimately, I found it in, in many ways, it's almost as sad as the first volume, which is hard to do. Um, Primo Levi gets, uh, gets home. He eventually writes a number of books. Uh, the most well-known after these two are, is the one called The Periodic Table, drawing on his chemistry um, experience. And also, it's also a different kind of memoir. It's a, it's a wonderful book. I really like it. And he dies uh, in 1987, having fallen down a stairwell in a death that is ruled a suicide. And um, we'll probably talk about that at some point. There's quite a bit of evidence that it wasn't a suicide. Um, but I, I just want to mention before we start that I think a lot of people have an emotional stake in in it either being a suicide or not a suicide, as if somehow people argue that you know, he let us down. He, he survived Auschwitz, but then he, he killed himself. And and the, the Nazis got the final victory, some people will say. And I find that so horrifying and so disrespectful. Um, but I, I just want to mention that there was a wonderful article uh, by uh, Diego Gambetta in the Boston Review looking at the evidence that it was not a suicide. And um, readers can check that out for themselves. But the truth is, it's not important in many ways. Um Primo Levi is immortal, uh, and these two books make him immortal. So, um, I I should say one more thing about Ellison that I think um, just listening to you talk about Primo Levi reminds me of. Uh, it's it's easy to forget that he's a chemist. You know, it's it's easy to sort of forget um, the the alchemy that happens to transform a chemist into a poet. Mm -hmm. And and I was thinking about um, this essay that Ellison wrote. It's called The Little Man at Chiha Station. And, and essentially what happens is uh, at the time Ellison is working, like delivering papers or something. And he goes to knock on the door and he hears voices. And the men inside are talking about opera. And not just talking about opera in the way a, a novice would, but they're like deeply debating things that different people do um, within within the art. And and contemporary singers and performers. And so he doesn't knock, he's just listening. And then when he finally goes to knock, he falls in and the, and, and the door's open. And there's all of these um, black men in it with a soot all over their faces. And he's astonished because he's thinking, this is not who I would have expected to have that conversation. And, and the essay becomes this corrective on, on, how to, on, 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 on like a lesson on not to confuse who we think will have knowledge and always remember that it's, it's this group of people who are deeply invested in something that, that you care about, that, that you can't predict and you can't name. And I, and, and that was my response to, to reading Primo Levi's book, because you know, honestly, I, I, I got this like strange relationship to, um, to books in general and philosophy and that it would, 
you know, I'd be the kid to talk too much and the teacher would say, see me reading and, and you know, I would ask a teacher. I had this long standing habit of asking strangers what they're reading. And I asked my 10th grade history teacher, what was he reading? It was a Jewish cat. And I wouldn't have even known what that meant back then. And I only knew him in, a little later because I asked him. It was a philosophy book. He let me read it. And then later on, he was trying to organize a field trip to to the Holocaust Museum and the school wouldn't let him. And so he asked a bunch of the students if we really wanted to go, we could go in the summer. And so he he took us in the summer and that was my first experience at the Holocaust Museum. I had this teacher, I was in 10th grade, it was summer 10th grade. So it's the summer before I went to prison. Um, he took us to the Holocaust Museum and it was, I'm not gonna act like it was like deeply moving and sort of transformative, but it was like, damn, I, human beings do this to each other. And it was deeply unsettling. And actually it was, I was too young to have the information to process it in a, in a lot of real ways. And I couldn't, and I, I clearly wasn't able to connect what I learned and what I saw to what I might do myself on a, on a much you know, lower level, but still the kind of brutality in which we treat our, our fellow people. And so returning to Primo Levi um, was, was, was a bit of a, um, a blessing because it helped me think about how do you write your way through hardship and, and it helped me the, the struggle of every memoir, I think, is that how do you not be the hero of your own story? And, and this was a, a stunning um, description of a story in which the writer almost effortlessly like resisted being the hero of the tale. Yeah. It's funny. I'm really glad you mentioned that first part about the inhumanity of human beings at times and very early in Invisible Man. And and we've I've been encouraging listeners to read both books, all three books, before we start talking about it. Still, please, if you want, put this on pause. Uh, we want to be able to talk about some of the plot and um, of, and what happens in both books. But And you should read it yourself before you hear us. But then the early part of Invisible Man is the scene that's uh, Battle Royale or Battle Royal that Ellison finds himself as a young boy in a public fight for entertainment in front of a bunch of rich white people. Um, and it is one of the most heartbreaking passages. Again, it's a work of fiction, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's like, how could people do this to other people? How could they manipulate them with such cruelty? And... Um, there's no answer to that question, unfortunately, uh, but it happens. Uh, Did you think the beginning is interesting, though, because the, the the first couple pages when he says, um, this is the part that struck me when I reread it. He says, I am an invisible man. No, I'm not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. When I read it, and, and the whole book is, is, is ostensibly about race in America. Yeah. But, but he said people refuse to see me. He did not say white people yeah. refuse to see yeah. me. And I, and I think on the second read, what I found most stunning is that... Um, the invisibility is not just a product of of race. And, and I, I think his larger argument was like the invisibility was a product of 
the denial of the agency of a of an individual. And so even in that battle royal, was on a second read, what was fascinating is that the the nameless protagonist and everybody that's fighting knows how absurd it is. Right. But they each they each feel invested in playing that role. And that role shifts in, in, in different ways. Like their role includes coordinating with each other. Um, their role includes picking um, collaborators. The, 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 the unnamed narrator, the protagonist, he tries to flip um, one of the white men onto the, onto the electrified coins at one point and then gets kicked in the face for doing it. So it is like this little sliver of resistance and that protagonist wants to give his speech. Oh, yeah. And that was what I found so sad is that like, you know, he was like, I still need to get a speech. And, um, and then it was sort of like, even in giving a speech, it was that moment where he said social equality. And he was like, what'd you say? I said social responsibility. And it was that moment where um, the assertion of, of what it means to be like human and, and it comes out even in the sort of desperate times, which was like, ultimately, I believe that's what, what I appreciated about, about if this is a man. And it was also, if this is a man, this is, this is what, a, this is how a man behaves. You know, if this is a man, right. As opposed to, um, this is not a man. And I think the unnamed protagonist is also asking this question is like, how do you move through the world? If you are a man and, and particularly, um, if you are unformed and you're trying to come to some sense of what the world is, you know, how do you respond? And it was, it's a deeply moral question. I think that gets answered, asked and answered in different ways throughout, throughout both books. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Both of them, both the narrators, Levy and Ellison are hiding in different ways within their book. Um, Levy keeps a lot of things away from us. He, he, He's, as you say, he's not the hero, but, and he, he reveals things that are shameful that he's done in in the book, but you have the feeling that there's some limit to how much he can reveal about himself. Um, You know, there's that, um, I just don't want to miss this scene. There's a scene where he's, he gets this incredibly great bit of good fortune. He gets to work in a lab. Because he knows a tiny amount of, not tiny, but he knows some chemistry relative to the project. And he and a number of the prisoners who, um, you know, it's a book, so it's not a video. We, we see them in our mind's eye. But there are some beautiful women in that office. And he's still a man. And he's still aware that he's being looked at as a man by these women and he still wants to be respected. And it's impossible. <laughs> he, he, he looks like a bag of bones and he's filthy. And um, it's one of the most heartbreaking, you know, there, there are much crueler things in the book, obviously, that happen to human beings in there. But his reflection on how these women were perfectly made up, coiffed and dressed Look at these Jewish, these German secretaries. Look at these Jewish uh, chemists. Is so heartbreaking, and um, we, we he doesn't tell us everything about what he feels in those scenes, but we he doesn't have to. 
And I, I feel like yeah. they're so um, – it's so hard. It, it, you know, we look at it from the comfort of 2022. I guess we can sort of imagine what it would be like um, to be in Auschwitz, but not really. You can't, and and I can't imagine no. what you went through in prison. Uh, again, I can read about it. I can use my imagination, but I think there's a limit. We can't. You did the, you you did you you did the episode with L.A. Paul, and, and she talks about a transformative experience. Right. And I think, I think Auschwitz is cool. you know a, a quintessentially transformative experience and, and part of what's revealing about that moment is that is that it's like how do you respond to the absolute inability for you to be the person that you want to be in the world and 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 the thing about like being a survivor and being a witness and i actually think that um, primo levy is a witness i mean i think every writer is a witness in some way but the burden of it is that it's obligation to survive and so what we don't know is um is how, how he processed the day-to-day to remember that scene. It, like, he doesn't reveal that, but you know that it, it had to happen because, because there's two ways to respond to it. One way is to let it wash over you as if, you didn't ha- as if it didn't happen, um, to not even notice that you're no longer, to actually embrace being non-human, right? Yeah. To embrace what people believe about you. That's one response, but it, it feels like his response was was to take it all in and, and carry it around. And, and it, it becomes, you know, it's, it talks about people still bathing, even with, with cold water and no soap, um, making their cheeks appear ruddy and healthier because it made you more likely to survive. And this is, this is even if it's, this is like a legal fiction, you know, like, like if, if we went back in time, it might turn out that, that no, this is like the, the thing you said about correlation not leading to causation. But but what he depicts is the the sort of need to believe this because it becomes one of the sort of building blocks that you use um, to believe that you're worthy of surviving. And, 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 and what you don't get is what it meant to carry all of that horror around and then transform it in a, into something that's um that's beautiful. And one thing I think about prison and I, when I'm reading it, you can't help but, it, you know, we, we like analogize. So I'm, I'm reading a book and, and I can't help but to think about you know those the, the 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 one moment where you get reminded of how you look in the world, and sometimes it's something as simple as like you go to the visiting room. Or actually, for me now, I, like that, I, I got pictures on my desk, um, and people won't be able to see it. But this is um this is me uh, when I graduated from from high school. I, I graduated from the Fairfax County Jail because it turns out I had enough credits to skip the twelfth grade, and they and they gave me a a cap and gown. And I, I look at the picture now, um, and I and I'm reminded of how the wearing a robe wasn't a joyous occasion, because because they literally couldn't find a robe that fit me, because like people my age weren't supposed to graduate from high school, and 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 people my age weren't supposed to be in prison, so they just didn't have something that fit a kid that was five five and 120 pounds, and it's. Is that that moment that smacked me in the face, and I'm smiling in the picture, 
because I'm smiling in the picture trying to trying to think about the sort of resist. And I feel like it's not the equivalent of 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 like bathing, even though you won't be clean. But but it, it reminds me of the sort of it makes me believe I could understand something of the desperation. And and because I think I could understand something of it, it makes me admire the the poetry and the lines um even more than I would have. I think if I hadn't experienced some of the stuff I've experienced. And it's a deep question that we'll maybe we'll be able to talk about it. I don't know if we if anybody can talk about oh. it. What were you gonna say? He said this is what he said. This is what he said. Prima Levy. Imagine Primo Levy, yep. Imagine now a man who is deprived of everyone he loves. And at the same time of his house, his habits, his clothes, and short of everything he possesses, he will be a hollow man, reduced to suffering and needs forgetful of dignity and restraint for he who loses all often easily loses himself. And, and you know, and, and I think the, the book, like the ability to say that is the ability to acknowledge that being offended in that moment with those women is the insistence that I haven't lost all, you know, I haven't lost the desire to be a man amongst women. You know, I haven't lost the ability to recognize um, the shame that others should feel for condoning sort of this set of circumstances. And and you're reading that and you think, oh, because you're reading it in 2022 and we're thinking, oh, surely those women must have felt sorry for him and they didn't feel sorry for him. They looked, they didn't see a human being. They saw an animal. And um, yeah, that's the... Um, I think it's true of I, – I have no – I feel like it's funny. I have no right to talk about it. I, but I, I'd like, if you want to, to talk – hear from you a little bit about the black experience that Ellison's channeling. I mean, the book is so freaking timely. It's so sad how timely it is. There, there's you know, there, it, There's an Eric Garner moment in the book where uh, – a man is simply selling something on the street that's not technically legal uh, and, and gets shot yeah. down in cold blood by a policeman. Garner, Garner got, got strangled, suffocated. He did something wrong, but he did something wrong that didn't, didn't deserve death. And that there's – You know, you know what's, what's profound about that part is like this – so this guy was – he was a part of the Brotherhood, and the Brotherhood is an organization that the unnamed narrator joins when when he moves to New York. Um, but it's this interesting tension between, and the Brotherhood sort of believed um, superficially that ideas of race shouldn't be brought up, and they had black and white members, and 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 they were really con- consistently asked the black members to sort of um, um, keep 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 down, tamper down their notions of like racism and think about this as this basically it's a loosely veiled reference to the communist party. Yeah, it's a utopian and, ideal that's yeah, loosely based on communism, but not on the so much on the economics part, more on the revolution no, no. And, and resistance yeah. to the current in, inequities and, and injustices. And what's profound about it is so this guy this guy was the the guy who gets murdered by the police. I, I keep wanting to call him um Clifton, but, no, um, it is. but, that's but I'm his not last sure if that's yeah, so Clifton is um, it, so so I think to understand that moment, you got to back up two steps, and it was a moment when Clifton and Roz, the exhorter, 
it, they was fighting. And Raj the Exhorter represented, you know, white people are evil and we should completely separate from white people. And he believed that Clifton and the unnamed narrator and any black folks that were part of the Brotherhood were traitors. And so they were fighting in the street. And Roz got the upper hand on Clifton. And Clifton was a fighter and a big guy. Roz got the upper hand and started to stab him and then started weeping and said, I, I won't do it. I'm, I'm not going to stab my brother. And he, and he was like, why are you running with them? So you fast forward in a novel and Clifton disappears and the, and the, and the narrator finds him on the street selling these Sambo dolls. And, um, and then it's the, and, and the altercation with the police and, and Clifton is murdered by the police. But the narrator describes him as a man outside of history. And, and, and he was trying to, it's like what, what the narrator to me describes is like Clifton was struggling to grapple with the ideas that Roz was putting forth about the world and the ideas that the Brotherhood was putting forth. And then the Brotherhood had kind of abandoned Harlem as a strategy and it broke Clifton and he became a man outside of history because he couldn't comprehend the world that he was living in. And when the officer murders him, you know, what's interesting is I actually don't even think that officer operates um, as like a representative of the system. I think the, the officer operates as another entity that's living outside of history. And, and that's behaving in a way that's like unfathomable to anybody that's looking at it with clear eyes. And, and so when I read that part, I mean, I find it telling that we still deal with these stories. But, but I find it telling that we, we still deal with these stories in a way that they kind of avoid... Um, I think Ellison's bigger point, you know, and I think Ellison's bigger point was that like he saw Clifton and Clifton's struggles um, in a way that the people who were in and, and that the way that the police didn't, the way that the Brotherhood didn't, the way that Roz didn't, like he wasn't a pawn for the narrator. He was a person who who was suffering and who got abandoned. And didn't know what to deal, what to do with the world once that happened, and 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 that's why I sort of found that part deeply moving. Um, but but you know, I, I think Ellison is saying something so so radically different about about race in America than people first first think. I w- I was really like turned off by the True Blood scene at first, oh, uh, because I, I kept thinking that like he was creating these archetypes and that this is how he wanted people to read um, black sharecroppers. And that, and that he wanted us to juxtapose the black sharecropper with the college students. And, and then I realized that in the grotesqueness of that narrative, he was asserting the right for, um, he said that he, in, a, in a letter to write, he said that um, novelists, that fiction writers don't go far enough. Um, they, don't, they aren't ambitious enough, even in their absurdities. And I think what he was trying to do with that is make a bigger point and, and the challenge readers to see the bigger point because True Blood says, you know what's messed up? is I do the worst thing a man could ever do. And I get more support from white folks than I ever got in my life. I mean, if I had been supported in that way, we would have never been laying in the cold on the floor in the first place. And, 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 and so it's, I, think it's, um, I think to me like that scene is challenging. But then the other scenes that are challenging is, is how Ellison insists on noticing the people that we don't notice. And I, and I think that's what Levy does, too. Like, Ellison insists on when he goes to New York, 
what is the first thing that makes him become an orator, a speaker? It's a couple being evicted. And his impulse to speak is both because he sees the couple being evicted as two elderly black folks being thrown out on the street, but also he wants to prevent the crowd from doing something that will lead to their death. You know, and, 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 and who, is, who saves him when he leaves the, 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 the sort of his first job? And, 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 and you know, he's, he's, he's like he got hurt on a job and they just left him out on the streets and he's stumbling through the streets. It's this woman, Mary, and, and, and he sees her and he describes her in such a way in which like she comes to life. I think that he animates um, these individuals, these, these Harlemites, um, these people in the community, even the vets in a way that 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 like demands that to be the center of how you think about black life and how you think about American life. Um, Maybe at least as much as as many of the conflicts animate animate the novel, you know, many of the sort of tensions animate the novel and the tensions that it still exists. I I would argue that that Ellison probably would say the Clifton's murder wasn't the most significant thing about Clifton's life at all. You know, the most significant thing about Clifton's life was the way the people abandoned Harlem. And he was trying to fight for Harlem and, and fight for Harlem in a way that was actually trying to get justice for everybody. I, I think he would say the most significant thing was what happens when you abandon people. Well, the humanity of those characters, like you said, I think in both books is um, I mean, it's a great lesson for life in general. The, the idea that Look around you. There's so many people that people don't pay any attention to. And we talk a lot in this program about the Adam Smith line that man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. There's so many unloved people. Again, not emotion, just emotionally unloved, but they don't, they don't get respected, admired, praised. They're invisible. They're hidden. And um, we all can look around us and see those people. And I, I like to think maybe it's naive, maybe it's romantic, maybe it's an excuse. I like to think noticing matters and counts. I mean, there are things better than noticing, but noticing is pretty good. And um, saying hello to those folks in an honest way, not in a you know, pro forma way, ask them how they're doing. Paying any kind of attention to those people that are neglected, that don't fit in, I think it's a supremely good good deed that we often fail to enact. It's uncomfortable, right? Those people are invisible. It, the tragedy, of course, is that they make themselves invisible after a while. They're so used to not being seen, they just kind of shrink into the to the woodwork, into the wallpaper, into the fabric of the world, and you feel funny sometimes reaching out to them because they don't make it easy for you. They're used to being unseen. Yeah, I think. But you have to. You yeah, have I to think the it. writer. Yeah, I think the writer. I mean, I think I think Primo Levi is, is like, you know, he he tells these stories about others to make us see them in a way to push, you know, to push against that. Um, I, when I read the piece about Lorenzo, and it was this guy that he met, and he says, um. He, he says, I believe that it was really due to Lorenzo that I am alive today and not so much for his material aid as for his having constantly reminded me by his presence, by his natural plain manner of being good, that there still existed a just world outside our own, something and someone 
still pure and whole, not corrupt, not savage, extraneous to hatred and terror, something difficult to define. But but what was beautiful about it, right, is he says all of this, right? So he says all of this, so you're like, oh, man, Lorenzo was great. And then he says, um, he says somewhere else, he was like, um, and it's, and, and then he says, where is it at? He, he says something else that was like, um, but you know, it's not even important about the details of the story. It says the story of my relationship with Lorenzo is both long and short, plain and enigmatic. It is the story of a time and condition now effaced from every present reality. And so I do not think it can be understood except in the manner in which we nowadays understand events of legends or the remotest history, which like, hmm. which I thought was hilarious in a way, because it was like, this is a deeply, it was these moments that, that honestly, I, I thought, I thought you know, nobody benefits from, from Auschwitz. Right. Um, but I thought that it was this, this like intense moment that lets you see something about humanity that you couldn't otherwise see. And in a short relationship, you could, you could like say something profound. But the beauty of the, like those lines was that in that short relationship, he could both say something profound and concede that yeah, there was nothing special <laughs> about the relationship. You know, it yeah. was it's kind of like the stuff of legends. It's not it, it wasn't a deep love. And, and that is so much of um of what prison is, you know, because and and and, and, and the you know, because it was a um these relationships, what happens in like it's like a relationship in dog age, you know, what happens in six months feels like a decade. And to be aware of that and not romanticize, like to admit that to the reader is 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 I think um you know it's it's such a and you talk about it as a, a, a as what it means about humanity in the world, but just as what it means just as a writer, I just found it um really, really beautiful to to be able to convey that. Um and, and I thought it was an act of making of making visible um what what could easily be you know reduced to it's a truly tragic book but when i think about it i think about like hope and beauty and poetry and and i don't think it was sentimental i I don't think that like it was meant Mm -hmm. to you know i just think that i just think it was like what do we demand of of the world that we live in and and i think we have a choice it's like to be lovely um, do, is that what we demand of, of the world like that we want to aspire to? And, and I think it's so easy um, to, to just say, no, I, I want to write about how horrific man is and, and act as if um, as if like that is the height of, of intelligence. And, and that I, I truly discovered something by revealing how horrible man is. And, and Ellison could have did the same thing, but they they both resisted that temptation. You know, uh, even True Blood, he says, you know, they say my women my daughter and my wife, and he's impregnated them both. Um, and, 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 you know, maybe he didn't, you know, who, but no, I think he did because his face was sliced open. So I think Ellison made clear that he did. Right. And he's like, the wife was like, you should just leave. He was like, but a man doesn't leave, which isn't to make everything that happened before that. Okay. It's, it's like all. to say that, like, it's like, but I can only do what I'm supposed to do now, which I don't know how how we respond to that, but I feel like when he wrote it that way, he too was trying to not make it seem like it was better, not make it seem like it was a good deed. It was still clearly it made both characters, it made the unnamed narrator and um and the guy he was driving around sick. But I think it was still him saying that like 
I've represented people in prison who've done horrible things. And, and I felt like, you, you know, you read that passage and, and one of the things you walk away with is Ellison suggesting that after the worst, you, you can maybe never redeem yourself, but reach towards what you imagine is redemption, which I think is, um, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about, you know? Well, I, I, as I get older, I think about that question a lot. Um, of redemption. When I was younger, I judged a lot of people. As you get older, I think you judge people less. Um, you understand how complicated it is to be a human being. It's ironic because now we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about people who do horrifying things, and yet they're human beings too. Um, but as an artist, as a novelist in Ellison's case, or a memoirist in the case of Primo Levi. They're capturing human beings in their fullness, and they're not stereotyped. They're not cardboard. Uh, that True Blood scene is is a masterpiece. It, it's a number. There are many, many, call, I would call them set pieces, where Ellison just, the poetic flights that he goes on, um, the use of language, the imagery that he's able to invoke is so rich. And in this case, it's serving the humanity of this man who's done something wicked that he's aware of. He has sort of an excuse, kind of. He was half asleep, you know, wasn't sure what was happening, maybe. Um, and um, but he's a human being. So now what? You know, what, what now? And he's struggling with that. And he's not, he's not proud of what he did. He's ashamed of it, but can't erase it. And, you know, we talked... We've talked on this program a little bit about forgiveness and you know the the challenge of forgiving oneself. And this you know this character doesn't forgive himself. He's going forward, yeah. um, and it's part of him what he's done. He knows that, but um, he moves on. But not but not you know without, okay. not fooling himself, not not lying to himself, not deceiving himself. He struggles and goes forward. I mean, I mean, and a subtle critique is is of the way society treated him. They're all pawns in a way, you know. The school wants them gone, and doesn't care about the daughter and the mother and the other children. Um, in a white society, it's it's never clear why they provide support. But even the guy, um, who, um, forget his name, but um, even the the, the trustee that Norton. hears the story Norton. and gets sick, Norton. He he um you know he gives him a hundred dollars. You know, it's like that that you know, it's just like this idea. But you know at the beginning, um it, so this that was deeply like both troubling, but I think it was I think that that, that Ellison was being crafty in a way because he was embedding this social critique in a story that was so engrossing that it's easy to not grapple with the complicated moral questions that are being raised. Um the same is true. Like, like it's this question is when did he realize he was invisible? He, you know, he says it in the in the beginning, but the beginning is the end, right? So he says it in the beginning, but that's not when he realized he was invisible. He realized he was invisible when he realized that black people also didn't see him. You know, when he dressed up as Reinhardt, he he didn't even know who Reinhardt was. That's great. And he puts on his hat and the glasses, and everybody mistakes him for Reinhardt. Like. 
then all of a sudden he as a character has a moral dilemma that didn't exist. It was it was these slight notes of a moral dilemma um, when he was with uh, Sybil. Um, that was a, a sort of moral dilemma. How do you respond? But but that happened afterwards anyway. Yeah. You know that happened after the Roundheart piece. Um, and and but he he put this the the hat on and the glasses and everybody mistakes him for this black name black man named Roundheart who apparently is a trickster. You know he's both a well-respected pastor, but he's also a pimp, and he's a womanizer, and he's dangerous. And, and like all of a sudden, he's like, wait a minute. If like you refuse to see me, like everybody refuses to see me. And I think that was also just the, the thing that made that, that I don't want to say it's the thing that elevated the book, but it's the thing that I've never heard about the book, that the people like said, wait a minute. The narrator recognized that he was invisible. He recognized that nobody saw him when he started to notice that the black people around him didn't see him. Mm. Like if it was that easy for him to become somebody else, they never knew who he was in the first place. If it was that easy mm. for him to just change his name and leave it behind, like then maybe he never had a name. And, and, and that's the part that um, when I read this time, one, I recognized the moral dilemma that, that then that narrator was in because he was like, okay, now this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy the brotherhood from the inside. But he couldn't bring himself to do it. You know, he couldn't bring himself to, to, to take advantage. And so, well, mind you, he had already had an affair with a white woman early on. So it wasn't sex. It was that the first relationship was clearly consensual. And it was based on a kind of mutual attraction. And, you know, and he left that bewildered and kind of ashamed when, when the woman's husband comes home and, and he believes sees him in the bed with her. With Sybil, he he sets her up. He has the whole plan, and and and, and then he and it's really a, a and you talk about the sixties and she wants him um, to to brutalize her to act out some sexual fantasy. Um, this is like a really charged scene, and, and 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 especially when you couple it with the fact that he is thinking that he'll go along with it for his own nefarious purposes, and then he's like, I can't. I can't do this, you know. No, I'm not going to do this. Uh, so it's 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 an interesting um, book in the way that it sort of um, unravels and reveals itself and, and forces you to to question. I, I, my first, my um, my my, I read it a time and a half this time. I read the whole thing and then I read fifty percent of it again and I jumped around back and forth. And at first, I I didn't know what was going on. Hmm. I, I knew what I thought was going it's hard on, to but then I had to go back and. and and I had to go back and spend some time with it to be like, am I responding too harshly? And, and when I went back and spent some time with it, I, I realized that it was sort of moral dilemmas that were re- revealing themselves in a way that was far more complicated than I wanted to give any book credit for in the front end. Because how can a book, because, you know, he doesn't end <laughs> underground. Correct. He, he ends like, I got to go back. You know, I got to go back out in the world. It's almost like truce. The truce is next. Right. You know, how do you go home after all of this knowledge? But but we don't get it from him. So what you're saying reminds me of, I hadn't thought about it, but the, the first part of the book is just so unrelentingly depressing. In An Invisible Man, everything goes wrong for this kid, and it's horrible, and he's abused in all kinds of ways, treated unfairly by blacks, by whites. And he finally gets what seems to be a, a good a piece of good luck. The Brotherhood singles him out. Jack, Brother Jack sees him and goes, uh, oh, you've got potential. 
And I don't know about you, Dwayne, but I, you know, reading it, I'm thinking, and I'm not a communist. <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah, I know. Doesn't matter. I'm, I'm root. I'm so happy for for the narrator that someone has seen him, seen him, sees the potential, sees his 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 a role for him, and and the narrator, of course. By the way, the up until then, and it it permeates the whole book. We haven't talked about this. He's constantly unaware of how to interact with people. He can't trust them. He doesn't quite understand them. He's always in the dark, and it's heartbreaking, right? We're, we're rooting for him most of the time, and he's clueless, right? And what's brilliant about Ellison is that we know. We can see who's trustable and who isn't. You know, we can see it, but but the narrator is is always lost, especially when it comes to New York. He's this kid from Alabama, and he's in New York. Of course, this is, this is a challenge for anybody of any race, but especially for this this poor black kid from Alabama who's just been brutalized emotionally by by people he used to respect and trust, and um, he doesn't know how to who to turn to, and so finally, finally, there's somebody who sees him as a as a great uh, as a person of potential, someone who can grow, someone who could achieve something, and you get excited for him, and of course, deep I guess in the back of my mind, and. I probably would have told you. I don't think it's going to turn out well, but I don't even think about it. I'm rooting for him so hard, and of course, Jack's a horrible person. He's, he's a he, yeah. he's a he's a um, objectifier. He sees the narrator as a, as an object to be used rather than a human being to be to be um, treated as a human being. And it's um, the the treatment of of the inhumanity all around him is universal. But 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 the race part, it, it's ironic. I think it's true of Levy also. I'd be curious in reaction. It's very particular, right? Primo Levy is a Jew. And the Nazis wanted to kill every Jew. And the narrator of Invisible Man is a black man. It could have been a story about a poor white kid who tried to go to New York, he'd have a lot of unpleasant experiences also. You could write it that way. But his blackness, especially the tension between the social activism of of Ross, the exhorter, who is a black nationalist, and the brother, which is this idea of universal colorblind justice, makes it so much more powerful. And even though I can't fully relate to it, the book makes me try, and but 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 and it's also what he wanted though because what what he wanted so what Ooh. he wanted from Roz the narrator um the unnamed narrator what he wanted from Roz and what he wanted from the Brotherhood was was really the same thing. Remember at the end when the ride is going on, and um and and you know you saw some of the profound ways that race operated throughout the book. Um, whether it was when he was working at the factory, and he said, uh, how do you make the perfect white paint? Three drops of black. <laughs> it was like, you know, it was a lot it's of like these joke. subtle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh. And, uh, and, um, and so, like, you saw this tension that was rooted in race, and it was, it was so rooted in race that, that the, the internal racial conflicts became absurd 
to the narrator. But for us reading it, it was very real. It was like the the person who who was used to break the to break the the union foreman, you know, or um, or it was the brotherhood using Clifton and using a narrator um, to break the, the power and influence of Roz the Exhorter. But but what the narrator wanted was was something different. Like he wanted to recognize the the really particular problems of Harlem and address them. And, and and confront them along racial lines, not to pretend like the racial lines didn't exist, but to confront them along racial lines. But imagine that there was some unified way to do so, that that you didn't have to be a, a nationalist organization to care about issues amongst black folks. And he would tell Jack, but we can't abandon them. We, we can't leave them. And like, interestingly enough, when he went uptown and he was working on the women's issues, you know, he did the same thing. And so I, I feel like like what what Ellison wanted what I walk away believing and, and is that the hope in it is that the narrator believed that it was something possible in terms of justice that you could get without um, colorblind notions of, of how injustice operate. And so that's, that's the, you know, the, the thread. And I, I think that's the thread that remained even at the end when it was the riot going on, and at first he was full tail, he was full, he was in it. He was like, "This is a riot for Clifton," and then he realized it wasn't a riot for Clifton. It was a riot for the accumulation of indignities, right? But he also realized that the guy beside him had a gun with one bullet. That you're gonna die, like you're outmanned here. This is not an effective way to try to create change, and and that becomes. Um, the center of, of and, you know, and I think Ellison is like when Ross, the exhorter becomes Ross the Baraka, it is about the futility of certain kinds of nationalism and, and how you end up, you know, you could say it's like France Fanon talking about how you become the oppressors, like how you end up eating yourself. And, and because, because, you know, Ross the exhorter becomes Ross the destroyer and is now suddenly willing to kill the unnamed narrator and is launching a spear at him. And I think that's, you know, the sort of in terms of the contemporary moment and why Ellison is, is so, I think, relevant now is because he's arguing that, that those tensions exist. It's, it's how do you shape out um, how to reimagine America, how to, how to reform America, how to make America better. The tension is, 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 is still the tension between, a, you know, Roz the Exhorter and Roz the Destroyer and sort of the narrator, how these different poles of belief operate in a world and a tragedy of like, um, what, what would it mean if, if we stop believing that, that there's a possibility to come together and actually support this community, having a better shake at it. Um, so I, I, so I don't know. I mean, I, I was troubled on a second reading of the book because I realized you don't think idea books should keep mattering. I mean, maybe we do think idea books should keep mattering, but I wanted, I wanted to read it and believe that somehow we had lapped some of the questions that, that he raises, but we really have been, haven't like lapped many of them. And, and I think some of us have, um, have become more ingrained in a sort of Roz the Destroyer side, you know? more entrenched in the Ross to destroy it. Yeah. The, well, there's always this temptation. I think a related issue is, is when the narrator eulogizes Clifton 
it's an incredible eulogy. And you want it to be this sort of emotional, you know, I want it to be this uplifting tribute to this man. And it's not. It's real. It's so real. It's so powerful about the loss of a life cut short and too soon. And it's it's just, it's a spectacular piece of writing to me because it's not what I, he could have written something really different. And he gets skewered by Brother Jack because he, he, he actually had a human moment. He just eulogized a man. Um, and it, it really is ironic, you know, given our pairing here. It's, if this is a man, and that's that's what Clifton, yeah, that's Clifton's, you know, eulogy is that this was a man, and um, and the, the Brotherhood wants to treat him as a pawn and wants to treat the narrator as a pawn. And you know, I think our current moment of race in America is this tension between our ideologies, which we all have, you know, whether we know them or not, almost all of us have some kind of ideology and the human moment. And if you're not careful, all you do is, I guess, the human moment and you don't get any change. But if you're also not careful, you treat everybody like a pawn and you, you're not a human being yourself anymore. I think I've talked about it before on this yeah. program. I know I have, I can't remember the episode. Um, Maybe it'll come to me, but um, Vasily Grossman has a essay on Treblinka that is deeply chilling. Uh, another death camp of the Nazis. And he actually argues that, um, you know, the Nazis in those settings couldn't kill the prisoners. They could just kill themselves. They could murder their own humanity, uh, but they couldn't take away the humanity of their their victims. Again, a little bit romantic, perhaps, maybe sentimental, maybe unrealistic. But um, he says that in his other book, uh, Everything Flows, which is another great book he wrote, incredible book. Um, but do you think, and this is this is one of the, you know, and I think this is one of the challenges for Levy. This is one of the challenges for anybody that writes about the Holocaust, is that it's very easy to just say that, like, the, the victims were pure, right. like— the Jews were pure. So it's like because because the Nazis are so horrible that that it's easy to just sort of frame the conversation that way. And and I and I wonder because you think about criminals, nobody says that. You know, if if if, if you're on death row for something, like nobody says that. Um, you know, we have a horrendous system of incarceration. I'm not comparing. No, I understand. You know, the Holocaust. To I prison. understand. But I know I'm <laughs> thinking about people listening. Yeah, I know. I, people listening might be like, there he goes. Yeah. But but no, I'm just. Uh, because I often ask people, like, is the question not what does a person deserve, but but like, what do we have the right to do to them? And and I feel like that's what the narrator is constantly asking, you know. And it's that moment where where Roz is saying, "You deserve to die. You were just trying to kill me. But what do I deserve to do to you as as my brother? I do not. I I don't deserve to kill you. Like I refuse to do it. And then something transforms in him." And he becomes less than himself when now he's willing to kill the narrator. And I, and I just wonder if, if, if you know, how the, the beauty of, I, I think, of any like great piece of literature is that it refuses to, to make my right to live, my right to be loved, my right to be noticed a product of my purity. And I think that, um, that that's, what, that's what Levy did. But, and that's what Ellison does. But like frequently in, the, in a popular conversation, 
um, our ideologies um, force us to assert the purity of our, of our roles, of our positions, because it is that purity that justifies doing anything, um, you know, rhetorically or sometimes actually physically um, to defeat the other side, you know. Yeah, I don't know what to say to that, Dwayne. Um, I think that's exactly right, though. I think the it's I think about yeah, there's a concept in the Holocaust literature, the and here in Israel, the, the righteous Gentile. Uh, and the Jewish community honors righteous Gentiles. It's a very formal honor, honorific. It means that during the Holocaust, you sheltered Jews or you took risks and saved Jewish lives. Uh, if you go to Yad Vashem, which is the museum here, the Holocaust Museum here in Israel, you know, these, are, these people get named. There's an honor roll for, for these folks. And it's hard to think about whether the list is long or short. <laughs> you know, I would I, have, if I were a non-Jew in Germany, Poland, Hungary, Italy, would I have sheltered a Jew, endangered my own family? I mean, why would anyone, how could anyone do that? Yet they, they did. And then you could ask, how could anyone not do it? But of course, most people can't. Um, and the there's so many. And you talked about the purity of the Jews, a huge issue in, in in Jewish literature on the Holocaust of the Jews who collaborated with the Nazis in the camps. And Levy writes yeah. about it. Um, yeah. Do you blame them? I can't. I I, I don't know what I would have done under those <laughs> circumstances. I have zero confidence in my own ability to rise above. My urge to stay alive. Levy certainly doesn't blame him. I mean, that that was one of the things I found astonishing and and sort of impressive in the way in which he um he paints some of those pictures. And it, it's not like again, it's not sentimental. It's just somebody who was there saying, you know, sometimes I made some tough decisions too. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think that really like great literature should make you should move you to the point that like you are almost absent of response. And, and I do think, um, and some of them take more thought to get you there. I think, I think Levy's like, it just cuts to the quick based on the subject matter, um, based on the writing. I mean, it really is just like so charged that, that you approach the page and it's hard. Um, and I've read other books that, you know, I mean, we sent 1500 copies of, um, of, um, Frankel's book. Man, search for meaning. But even in a title, you know. But I mean, but even in, it's a good book. It, it, some of it, the first half, I think, is lovely, right? And it, and still though, it's in its moments that that like reach to I think the best moments of of Levy, right? Um, but as a whole, I don't, I don't, you know, I I, I stopped reading it, and it's not that I stopped reading it because I didn't think it was good anymore. It's, I stopped reading it because it became um, towards the second half of the book, it became just not the same thing. And so it's not it's not that you guarantee to do the thing because you take on the subject matter. And and I think this is what I mean. I, like the book moves you to a point where you you see yourself in the 
you see something of who you aspire to be and something of who you aspire not to be within the pages. And I think that's the that's when a book really, really does something for you. It becomes less about informing you and exposing you to a world that you hadn't seen, but it becomes about um, in a really private way, bringing you into that world. And I think that's what, what Ellison does. And, and, and the beauty of it, the, the strength of it, the craft of it is, is when I'm, you know, it tells that story about the man who was locked up for 19 years and he escaped and, and he gives him that leg. Iron. Oh God. Um, and 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 then because 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 he doesn't want to make it easy, he has a another black man come into his office. Like, what's that you got on on your desk? You shouldn't you shouldn't show people that. You shouldn't you shouldn't make people remember that. And and, and you know the 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 narrator didn't want it actually. You know he he only took it because he thought what he planned on throwing it away, and it was almost like. Ellison showed us the narrator being educated in such a way that we became educated about what it means to sort of hold on to history. And all of a sudden, I didn't know who I was in that story. Right. I didn't know if I was the person that wanted to hide my past. I didn't know if I was the person that escaped from prison or if I was the person that just accepted something because I didn't know how to reject it. And I think that's what, you know, but I was there. I was, I was actually all of those three at various moments. And so it's a, this is why, you know, I, I, my wife told me I can't go back to college, um, but this is why even in my moments of wanting to be an economist, of wanting to sort of like deeply um, understand markets and, and ask myself, can you be an economist and think about the world without being so entrenched in numbers? The, the reason why I, I, I often find myself not wanting to be whatever we imagine to be a scientist it's because science is is obsessed with the resolute, yeah, and the provable, and art is obsessed with the notion that like if you weep, that's the only evidence that matters. You know, if you if you move, that's the evidence that matters. And it's a it's a weird tension in my own head about um, how to make those things coexist because you can become you know you can become a person that doesn't truly try to find ways to fix problems because you only know how to talk about it movingly um, if you don't think in some concrete ways. But but the narrator was doing both. He was giving the, the speech for Clifton and also organizing. And, and so I think in that way, the narrator was believing that that you could do both. And you could do both premised on the idea that um, that notion of universalism can exist without ignoring the fishes of race and without ignoring the realities of race, which which I, I think is something that's deeply important for me to believe as a um, increasingly, you know, like, I mean, I'm like 41 with, with children. You know, I, 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 it's, it's something really different to be 20 and, and not feel like you got a stake and responsibility in your community. But now, I, you know, I feel like I should be doing, like, at the very least, I mean, I do vote. But it's like at this moment, you feel like at the very least, if you see somebody being evicted, you shouldn't just walk past them on the street. And not notice that this is a whole life that's strewn on the sidewalk, and and, and that's Invisible Man making me think that. Um, and so, I don't know. Well, you're not alone. There's at least one economist who has that tension between the the, the resolved and the the um, ambiguity. I, I'm. Uh, I think. 
it's something I think about all the time, right? A lot of people, especially being the president of a college that's devoted to the great, great ideas of Western Jewish thought. I mean, come on, you got science or what about you know, biology, computer science, engineering? Let's do stuff. You know, all, all that art, literature and philosophy do is you know, they make you weep. But I think they also make you wise uh, if you're lucky and if the art's good. And I think that that three-headed moment you had, three-hearted, I guess a better phrase of feeling like the, the person who wants to hide his past, the person who wants to remember the past, the person who wants to emotionally cope with it and try to make it part of who that the person is. I mean, all of that should be who you are as a full human being. You don't want to be a cardboard character. It's a huge issue here in Israel about the Holocaust. It has been for the last, since the establishment of the state in 1948, right? Here you have these Holocaust victims who um, are small and ineffectual. It's one way to summarize them. They are victims. And then um, the state of Israel gets established and the ethos that they that Israelis want to have is we're warriors. We're not like those European Jews who sat around reading the great books and for hours a day and we're strong. We're not afraid of anybody. We got nothing to to worry about except defending ourselves. And it's a fascinating, I think, moment in human history, that transformation of the Jewish people from this intellectual, ineffectual victim class it can't be much worse than six million people dead in the Holocaust to one of the greatest military, military absurd overcoming of odds in both the establishment of the state in 1948 and the War of Independence or the Six-Day War in 1967. And so Israelis, I think, have an issue with, with the Holocaust. It's hard. It's hard. And a lot of people, I was, I was at a gathering the other night, said this is a big issue in Judaism is Holocaust, Holocaust enough. It's we got to look forward. We can't look back. Can't look at, at that that past. If that's all we are as victims, then then young people are going to get a terrible image of what Judaism is about. And I, and I certainly think I, I'm somewhat sympathetic that I don't. I hate the um, let's compete and see who is the worst victim. Let's let's try to, you know, I, I got yeah. my, you know, I I got mine. You got yours. Let's see who's worse. And and I think that's a horrible mistake. But. Um, Coping with your the past, either the past of your of one's people or the past of one's own life, and how you should look back and deal with that or ignore it, is I think a, an enormously important part of the human experience. And and it's not just um, about weeping; it's about it's about knowing who you are, and certainly who you are is partly where you came from, and it's where you want to go. That's one of our great gifts as human beings. We can look to the future. And I don't think you can ignore it. And I think the the richness, the non-resolute, the non-resolved aspect of the human experience is enormously important. And I think it gets neglected by an overemphasis on science and precise results and three decimal places. I I, I love this line from Picasso. I don't like he said uh, computers are useless. They don't all they give you is answers. Mm. You know, 
when you asked me for a book, though, that was my tension. It was sort of that, like, enough about the Holocaust. I thought, like, what book will I choose? And, and I, you know, I was thinking about Wright because I was, I was reading it in the moment. Richard Wright. And um, Richard Wright's Black Boy. And I, and I chose, I was like, I don't want to do this one because I thought that, um, that he had a really clear sense of the world. Um, but it was 1930s, you know, Mississippi. But I thought he wasn't as generous to um to the people around him and i just thought it wasn't a good it wasn't it, it wasn't a good thing to read in company with um i didn't want to read it in company with if this if, if if this were a man um if this is a man and so um and then i thought man but am i gonna choose a book that talks about race because like is this the only thing that we could talk about to understand what it means to be um black in america and then I started thinking about the Freedom Library and the idea that um, arguing that Invisible Man is important in the way that it treats issues of race is important is not suggesting that there aren't another 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 500 books that we could be reading. And I think it's the same thing um, for If This Is a Man. It's like in, in my head, I, I wonder if I reduce what it means to be if if I reduce what it means to be Jewish to to the Holocaust, um, and then I think no, I, I mean I don't. I read the Chosen, you know. I read I read a, a few other books, you know, and I connected with the Chosen. I mean, I literally, you know, I, I, I when I got hit in the eye with a soccer ball, I just thought, oh man, I mean, this is just like that book I read, and and it was my solace as I was being rushed to the emergency room in handcuffs because they thought that I had a detached retina, and so. And so, yes, I, I, I buy that point. And I also believe that part of the struggle, at least for me, is finding ways to sort of deeply tap into other cultures of the world. And, and you can never do that through a math problem that just gives you answers. You know, you can never do that through, through science, but you can do that through literature. And, um, and maybe that's why I, I appreciate econ talk because it, it, it has this belief in books as literature, you know, even, even in books that are sort of deeply rooted in different ways and, and economics, they, they still come off the page and within the conversations as literature because it's always like a story that is animating the numbers. You know, it's not the numbers that animate the story. It's the stories that animate the numbers. So, so let's close with this question. And then maybe at the end, you can give us a little update on the, the Freedom Library. Um, so one of the things that was special about reading this book, and I, I told you before we recorded, I'll share with the listeners now. You know, I started the book, and it's so depressing. The first couple hundred pages, I'm thinking, just everything goes wrong for the narrator. It's just, it's it's unfair. <laughs> it's literally unfair. It's like too much. And I'm thinking, why did why did I agree to read this? It's just depressing. I get it. And then. And having said that, there, there, as we suggested, there's a numerous set pieces in this first half of the quarter, 40% of the book that are unforgettable, magnificent, and at least unforgettable for me now that I've read it a week ago. <laughs> and then I forgot about them when I read it when I was 20. But they're fabulous. And the book then just rises up. It just goes from being a a picaresque novel of a of a pitiful, abused character where nothing goes right to a, an anthem about all the voices in America, all the 
tensions that we've been talking about between races and, and whether we should, what we should be striving for, what's the right way to get there from here. And um, I finished the book this morning. I take a bus to work sometimes. I sometimes walk. And for reasons that aren't worth going into, I, I got off the bus early and I was going to walk the last 15 minutes to work. I just stood there and read the last 15 pages on the sidewalk standing on my phone. And um, it just filled me up. It was, um, it's it's really an incredible experience. But part of this fun, not fun, not the right word, part of the emotional kick of reading this book as a 67-year-old instead of a 20-year-old was reading it with you. So I had you over my shoulder and of course, I have to wonder, you know, how, I can't read this book the way you read it. And similarly, while you were reading Primo Levi, I'm sure you were wondering how I read If This Is a Man. I mean, there, I cried when I read the Primo Levi at, at the age of 65. I'd read it as again as a kid, and I cried. There's, there's one line, I'm not going to say what it is, but there's a line in, in the truce of all uh, compared, you know, it's, uh, the two books you would have picked usually if this is a man, but in the truce, there's a line that just broke my heart. And I don't know, is that because I'm Jewish? Is that because I'm a person? But I'm sure when you're reading those two books by Primo Levi, you're reading me, reading them a little bit with me over your shoulder. And so it made it much more special for me to read it alongside you. I didn't know you were going to go back and reread Invisible Man. That makes it even sweeter. But to read these two books, these three books together with our different backgrounds and our different emotional responses, because you're black and I'm a Jew, but it doesn't matter. We're just two different people. Going to read them differently no matter what. But it just made it, it was exhilarating in many ways. So I, I'm grateful to you for it and um, really appreciate that you agreed to, to talk about it on the air. Yeah, I was... Uh when when you suggested Primo Levi, the book is falling apart. It came to me, and um, and it was all. It's one of those books that you know, like you might might get a bad copy to buy it because it's both of the books together, and and it was it was falling apart, but it became a whole experience. It, you know, it was it, it the pages were falling apart, but the ideas were so cohesive that they was just sort of becoming a part of my life and a part of my conversation and I'm and I'm telling people about Levy. I got this habit of telling people about things as if they hadn't read it before. And I got a bunch of Jewish friends and I'm like, yo, you read Primo Levy and I got a bunch of friends who hadn't read it. And I'm talking about this is the book that'll make you think about like prison in a different way, which um which is not the thing that that you expect somebody to say about Levy. But I but I thought that um I was reading it with you over my shoulder, but also I was reading it with what you telling me that it would help me understand something of the Jewish experience and then astonished in a way in which it reminded me how literature helps you understand something about like your every everyday active experience of trying to be a a, a, a human being worthy of being loved in the world. And and when you suggested that I suggest a book to you, um one of the struggles was figuring out what book it was. And then I chose Invisible Man and then I was afraid that it was um it was like the cliche choice. And and I knew I hadn't read it since I was like 16 or 17. And um, and I actually didn't remember much of it also. 
And it's, it's weird because it's the kind of book that matters when you read it and you talk about it. You know, the, the narrator, I, I don't know if he changes much from, from the first page to the last page. I think the narrator starts out saying, but why would I lie to Mr. Norton? And I don't think it's like, why would I lie to this white man? I think it's like, you don't lie to people. You know, I mean, it, it, and so he ends the book at that same sort of sort of innocence. And so, you know, it's horrific because at the first parts of the book, you think this would just be better for him if he distrusted everybody. And when he takes on the Reinhardt um, persona, he starts to think this would be better for everybody if I distrusted everybody and was just manipulative. And then he abandons that, you know, and, 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 and reading it the second time made me believe, um, you know, that made me believe that um, about different manner of possibilities in the world. And also, and also this is the, the, the wild riff, though, it says, I'm invisible because you've refused to see me. And, 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 and it's like you, and, and the you is me, and the you is you, and the you is the reader, right? And then it ends with, who knows, but that on the lower frequencies, I speak for you, which is to say, I speak a kind of possibility um, for who we might be that is radically different from, from both like who, he had, who we had been and who we had been at, at our worst. And so it was a, a real honor and a pleasure. And, 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 and I will say, right, like, we talk about reading it together. When I was talking to these guys, I put the Freedom Libraries. Um, it, one was in a segregated housing unit. And when I was, you know, segregated housing unit, solitary confinement. When I was in solitary confinement, um, I, I was in there for like five different times. But each time it was because they said I did something. Whether or not I think they was worthy of being put in a hole or not, it was always because they said I did something. And so when the prison said, well, you put one in solitary, I thought, yeah. And I thought it was for people like me who had ostensibly done something to get put in a hole. And it ended up being for um, a group of guys who, you know, were roughly in like protective custody. And, and, um, and I got a chance to talk to them. And one of the things they said was the reason why books matter is not just the, the reading, but because we can have conversations like this. And, and I think that that's what, what you could do around books that you can, you can do around stories, you can do around narratives that, that allow us to see each other in, in profoundly different ways. That just is the, is the one technology that, that I think truly distinguishes us. Um, at least I imagine distinguishes us from every other species. You know, it's the, it's the one unique thing about being human is that uh, we could tell each other stories and those stories allow us to think differently about who we are and, and who we might be. My guest today has been Dwayne Betts. Dwayne, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It was a pleasure. Always a pleasure. I'm, 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 chasing, I'm chasing Mike Munger, though. I'm, I'm at two. I'm, I'm going to get to 150, you know, before 2027. So um, he better keep coming on the show. I'm coming for him. Yeah, I got bad news for you. He's coming soon, but it's okay. I'll, I'll have <laughs> you back. <laughs> This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. 
Talk to you on Monday.